0: at 919-860-9783. That's 919-860-9783. Now here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah.
1: Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. Hello, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug Linda and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management and retirement planning for over 30 years. Hello there, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters with Doug and Linda has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all of your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 20 years. And again, with me as usual tonight is my wife, Linda, who works with me in our firm, Lewis Financial Management.
2: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. Doug and I are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing investment in financial advice since 1983.
1: For over 20 years, we've been answering your questions on the WPTF phone lines. They are your questions and our answers
2: So sit back and enjoy, or if you're free, call us tonight on The Open Lines. We'll take your calls anytime during the next hour. You're free to call in and ask any financial question about your own personal financial planning. Call us at 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF.
1: Well, financial planning is everyone's business, and still for most folks, money matters are just a big puzzle. Folks have questions about planning for retirement, planning for a child's college education. They don't know the difference between financial planning and money management. They want to know a lot these days. They want to know what's a mutual fund, what's a limited partnership, what's a REIT, what's a will, what's a living will. And yes, it really can confuse you, but you're not alone. Because in a world crowded with new investments, changing tax laws, rapidly evolving insurance products, and volatile economic cycles, more and more people are looking for clear direction in their financial lives. And yet, unfortunately, the busier and the more successful they are, the less time they have to sort out their financial affairs. And people are asking, is there any solution?
2: Well, yes, Doug, there certainly is a solution. Out of this increasingly complicated financial environment has come a new breed of professionals that are trying to solve people's money puzzles. And that's the Certified Financial Planner.
1: It's the certified financial planner who offers something that people don't get from the traditional stockbroker, money manager, accountant, insurance agent, or bank trust officer. And that's a way to consolidate all aspects of people's financial affairs into one financial plan. It's the certified financial planner who knows how to pull together all six areas of a client's financial life.
2: Doug, I think for many people, the first area of financial planning is cash flow planning with questions about their emergency fund, their mortgage, their credit cards, and reducing their debt.
1: Well, yes, Linda. And yet for many people, the second area of financial planning is retirement planning. Those who are working want to know how to compute what they'll need to live on during retirement and how much they should be saving for retirement. They want to know what investments they should choose from the choices in their company's 401k plan. Others are retiring and have received a lump sum payout option from their company's retirement plan and they want to know, should they take it and if so, how should they invest it? Well,
2: Doug, the third area of financial planning that must be dealt with is estate planning. For most people, over their working years, their estate has grown. How can they reduce their estate taxes? And they wonder, are their simple wills sufficient, or maybe they should be considering the complicated world of trusts.
1: If that's the third area, Linda, the fourth area of financial planning cannot be overlooked. This is tax planning. People are interested in both tax reduction strategies and tax reduction investments, home mortgage interest, Charitable giving, tax shelters, tax-free bonds, questions about capital gains taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes, and how to sell real estate tax-free using trusts. What a confusion.
2: Well, Doug, we can't forget the fifth area of financial planning, which is insurance planning. How much life insurance does a family really need? Do they have too little insurance or maybe too much insurance? Should they have whole life, term, or universal should they have long-term nursing care coverage?
1: You're right, Lynn. And, of course, the sixth and most important area of financial planning is investment planning. Here, the questions never stop. What's the best way to diversify my investments? Is now a safe time to invest in stocks? What about bonds? What kind of stock mutual funds? Bond mutual funds? Equipment leasing partnerships? REITs? CDs? Gold? Annuities?
2: So, Doug, it seems that at last it's time for people to understand that a certified financial planner is really the only one who can tie together all six parts of their financial puzzle. And to you out there listening, if you've got a question on your mind about cash flow planning, retirement planning, estate planning tax planning, insurance, or investments, call us now on the open lines and we'll answer your financial planning questions. Those numbers to call are 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. And if you just want to sit back and listen to the callers through the years, welcome to the show.
3: out before the statutory law trust came out. So I knew I'd heard you mention about trusts. Uh I didn't know if you were familiar with the complex trust that uh, used the common law instead of a statutory law that most of the lawyers that you go to now try to write you up a trust under the statutory law.
1: Well, I think you're probably getting yourself in a little deeper than you want to and getting over your head with a confusion of terminology. Let, let's come down to your situation, Thomas, and I'll see if I can tell you what you need to do. How old are you? I'm 58. 58 years old. And I uh, are you retired or are you working? Oh, uh, I work. All right. What's your income, Thomas?
3: Uh, I have no idea, really, Doug. I'm,
1: you have no idea?
3: I'm, I'm self-employed and still in a lot of real estate.
1: All right. Well, you know, you have to file income taxes every year, right? Right. Okay. So you know how much you made last year. Not really. Well, boy, that's what sort of you. You need to be a lot more aware of your situation, Thomas. What are you trying to achieve with a trust? Um. What are you trying to what are you trying to accomplish?
3: Just uh, information, really. I've got some, some friends that uh, have been talking about trust, and we're trying to get some
1: more information about them. Well, the world of trust is very complicated. They break into testamentary trust versus inter vivos trust. And from testamentary and inter vivos trust, they then break into revocable and irrevocable trust. And the question of common law or uh, statutory law is irrelevant. That has nothing to do with the question of trust, Thomas. What you really need to do is to get a better handle on your situation and what you're trying to achieve. And then I can tell you. What type of trust is best for you?
3: One thing, there's uh, some people out of California that's trying to uh, market
1: national trust services. Right. I think they, they they peddle something called a living trust.
2: Are you trying to protect yourselves from estate taxes? or I mean, do you own a lot of real estate? Is that part of yeah, the issue? Yes,
3: millions of dollars worth of real
2: estate. Okay, so would it be fair to say that maybe it's a, a $3 million estate? That's,
3: that's real small, ma'am. One thing is this, uh, this trust services say that they have ways that, uh, you can sell real estate by setting it up in trust and assign, assign the real estate to another trustee, swapping like that to avoid the income taxes. And also they set up a charitable trust where if you have any, any, um, profits, say for a year or so, uh. Whichever year you have profits, then the profits go into the charitable trust. Charitable trust contributes, I believe, 5% of the income for charity. The rest of it stays in a charitable
1: trust. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to explain to you, Thomas. You're getting yourself very confused. We do these for a living in our office. And I would give you our office numbers if you would like. Our
2: number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
1: Because we do charitable trust. We do credit shelter trust. We do revocable living trust. But my, my point is that you need to, to know what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to sell real estate and not pay capital gains tax, then a charitable ta- trust will work for you. On the okay. other hand, okay, just...
3: Okay, that's... Uh... That's one thing because it'd be it'd be nice to be able to retire and right sell, sell right. a lot of assets and not
1: uh, not have to pay right. We can do that. We can set up a charitable remainder unit trust where you go ahead and transfer your real estate or whatever it is that you're worried about has a high capital gains tax into this charitable trust, and then the charitable trust can sell it and pay no capital gains tax and turn around and start paying you and your wife a lifetime income for the rest of your lives. The risk there is that you want to make sure the trustee is someone that you trust. And the way to solve that one is make yourself your own trustee. Okay. Now, the problem with that is you have to have an administrator who will administer a self-trusteed charitable trust. and. There's no company out of California that's marketing that sort of service. You have to come and actually find an administrator who will administer a self-trustee trust, and you want to have one designed. That's exactly one of the things that we do. We, we believe in setting up a charitable trust where you are your own trustee, and then we find an administrator so that you control everything. The, the, the one thing you have to be aware of in setting up a charitable trust with yourself as the trustee Is if you want to pass this estate on to the children, you need to replace what you put in the charitable trust with insurance because after your death, everything in the charitable trust, even though you've controlled it during your lifetimes, it's going to then go to a charity. So you want to set up a second trust, which is called an insurance trust. To replace everything. So now let's say you've got $20 million of real estate. You put $20 million of real estate into this charitable trust. You can sell it inside the charitable trust and pay zero taxes on it. And now the income from that $20 million can come back to you and your wife for the rest of your lives. And that could be as much as, oh, uh, a million and a half a year income to y'all. Okay. Sure. Then at the same time, however, you want to set up a second trust that owns a $20 million life insurance policy that will go to your children after you, the two of y'all die. Those are usually second-to-die insurance policies, and they're a lot cheaper than regular insurance policies. They don't pay off until the second death. But by the same token, where you get the, the money to pay the premium on that insurance policy is from the cash flow from the first trust that's paying you a million and a half a year. You see what I'm saying? Okay, yeah. That will solve the estate taxes, That will solve the capital gains taxes. And that may be the one you're thinking of. Now, the revocable living trust is the one that most people are seeing being there's a company in California that's marketing those. And that saves probate expenses and confidentiality. That one has no tax benefits, has no capital gains benefits, has no benefits like that. But that one does keep the public from knowing at your death what your spouse received.
2: It may be to your advantage to use someone locally. I mean, you know, what happens is that people generally, they'll go to all these seminars, and then they come home, and then their head is spinning because they just, they get so much information overload, and then they wonder, well, how does this relate to my situation?
1: Aside right. from that, the, the trust must be drafted by a North Carolina attorney, if you're in North Carolina, who is knowledgeable in these areas and... And if you don't, if you, I mean, that's one of the things that all attorneys will warn you about working with out-of-state companies that deal with your local laws in this state. All right.
2: And so you know, and you need to have your your whole estate analyzed so that it's appropriate for your situation. So, why don't, if you'd like, you can call us at the office, Thomas. Our number is nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand here in Raleigh. Nine one nine. USA 7,000, and we'll be happy to provide you with more information if you'd like. Okay.
1: Okay? All right. And thanks for calling. Thanks very much. Thank you, Thomas.
2: Well, Doug, there are a lot of people out there that want to know if they have a lump sum of money, should they invest it at one
1: time or should they space it in little by little? Sometimes the market goes down and sometimes it goes up. And so if you got got $100,000, for example, to invest, if you send it in at one time and the market drops afterwards, you say, golly day, why didn't, I send it, why didn't I wait and get it in when it was low? I would have had more invested. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if we send it in little by little by little, which is what we call dollar cost averaging, let's say 10,000 a month over 10 months, then hopefully some of it will go in on a month when it drops and then when it goes back up again, it, it'll go in and you'll buy more shares that way. And that's the traditional view. And I still thoroughly agree with the philosophy of dollar cost averaging, except for the fact that there is another risk that a lot of people and financial advisors are recognizing. And and what is that? If we think that 10 months from now, the market will be significantly higher than it is now, then for sure we would like to have gone in now. However, suppose that you are doing a pay-yourself-first investment plan with your excess money. Right. Then- dollar cost average. That's exactly what should happen. Don't make the decision of when I'm going to invest in a good month or a bad month, but set up an automatic investment plan, which we call a pay yourself first plan at the beginning of each month. And then yes, because you don't have the choice of a lump then, and you'll probably do better this way than trying to accumulate the cash and then deciding when to go in.
2: And if you'd like any further information, you can call me at the office and the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000.
1: Well, Lynn, sometimes it pays to say no to an inheritance. Why would anyone want to do that? Want to say no to an inheritance? You may get an inheritance, for example, that may well come when estate taxes threaten to swallow a big chunk of that inheritance. You may be able to divert those taxes and pass on much more of the inheritance to your family or to your children if you simply say, no, I don't want it. That's a disclaimer. Take an example into a $3 million estate. The estate taxes can be substantial and can be saved tremendously if you use this disclaimer. Let's say the widower in a case like this, or let's say a wife who dies leaves a $600,000 estate. She's written her will years ago before her estate got to any size. She decided at that time to leave it all to her husband, plain old I love you will. It's been sitting in her safe deposit box for 20 years and now. At her death, here's a $600,000 estate that's going to go to her husband. And it says, unless he dies first, and if it does, it then goes to their children. So those are her desires. But the widower himself, the husband, let's say he's built up this separate estate of $3 million that he has. Right. So he certainly doesn't need his wife's 600000 does he?
2: No, I don't think so.
1: He also figures out that if he takes that 600000 it's now in his estate. And if he dies the next day... And the IRS is going to get three hundred and thirty thousand dollars of that six hundred that his wife left him. Sounds like a big problem well, it's it's a very common problem, right. and And here there's too late to do any estate planning because he because she's already dead. Mm-hmm. If he, however, renounces this bequest, if he says no, I don't want it. That's a disclaimer. If he disclaims it, then it's going to be treated exactly as though it passed directly under her will. To their children, so he would
2: he have to do something in writing. He I mean, just
1: he just he just writes a disclaimer after it's already over. She's died. Refusal. <laughs> that's what it is. A disclaimer is a refusal, and you know what happens? Instead of six hundred passing to him now, it goes instead the other way to the kids, one hundred percent tax free. Whereas if it went to him and then he died and went to the kids, they would pay three hundred and thirty thousand dollars of estate taxes. If that's six hundred that his wife left him. It's a tremendous savings. Obviously, Linda, it's best to do your estate planning during your lifetime, but that doesn't always happen. Right, that's correct. That's when a disclaimer may be a tremendous help. Now, heirs don't always get a chance to use it. It depends on the situation. But when you can use it, man, it's like hitting a home run.
2: You know, Doug, it seems like a lot of people have been calling in at the office that have had similar problems or Serious estate problems where they have sizable estates and they're wondering, is it now finally the time to do some planning or to get things in order? Because of the question of estate taxes at the death of a parent or you know of, of, a,
1: of a spouse. Estate issues are big, but sometimes it pays to say no to an inheritance.
2: That sounds great. If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Let's take another call, Doug.
1: John, this is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. How can I help you this evening?
3: Hi, Doug. Why would anybody not be in one of those oil and natural gas partnerships? Sounds almost too good to be true.
1: Real simple, because you can lose your money. If you write a check for $20,000 to buy part of, of a gas drilling program, and you had the choice of writing a check to Uncle Sam for $9,000 in taxes, if that's the number... If you write the one check for 20000 and you don't write anything to the IRS, then basically you're still out 11000 more than if you'd written the first check, right? That's correct. Okay. Now let's say you go into a program that is high-risk drilling. And here we have three types of drilling programs. One is called exploratory drilling, and one is called developmental drilling, and one is called wildcat drilling. Wildcat drilling programs are the ones where you go for your big gushers about 90% of those are fails, are dry holes and you miss. When you hit, you hit real big. Then you have your exploratory programs, 80% of those are dry holes, but when you hit, you hit quite large. Your developmental drilling programs are low risk programs. Some of those 80 or 90% of them are successful. We can look at companies that can show us that out of the last oh, 800 wells they've drilled, maybe uh, 750 of them have been successful, but they drill shallow very shallow, and they drill into known pools. They're basically sinking wells around existing successful wells. So here you don't have what's called a dry hole risk, usually. I mean, there's always a dry hole risk because technically all the holes, let's say you go into a program that's going to drill 20 wells. And yes, all 20 of your wells, even if they were developmental, could be dry. And because of that, Uncle Sam gives you the deduction. But let's say that maybe 15 or 16 of your wells are successful. Okay? All right. All right. Now your checks start coming. Well, as you get money back, let's say your first year you get maybe thousand dollars back. All right, you you save nine thousand in taxes, so now you got a thousand back. So now you're, you know, you you started with eleven thousand out of pocket, right? All right. You get a thousand back, and now you're ten thousand out of pocket. Well, every year that your checks keep coming back, you have less and less exposure, but you're still at risk. Okay. Until you reach what's called payout. Payout is the point when you've gotten back everything that you put in. Okay. Well, at this point, if you've reached payout, then you come to another kind of risk. How much longer will these wells produce for me? 10 years? 15? 20 years? 30 years? Some wells are very long life wells. If they dry up on you in 7 or 8 years and you expected them to run 25 years, then basically... You look and say, gee, my investment risk, I mean, I got my money back and I made a little profit, but I would have been better off paying the taxes and investing the money in a good mutual fund. Right. So that kind of risk is always facing you until you've reached payout. Now, I will say there is a way that we like to advise clients that are participating in these programs to make sure that they get the best bang for their buck, and that's to direct all of the income checks from the wells straight into a mutual fund. So they accumulate and compound along the way. Right. Uh, the other thing is, of course, they're not suitable for all kinds of people. Uh, every program has what's called a suitability requirement. Some of them require that you have a minimum $30,000 a year income and $30,000 net worth. Some of them require a $50,000 net worth or $50,000 income. And so they're only suitable for people who have these needs. But there has to be that risk uh, or there's no tax incentive
3: sounds like you'd only recommend these for someone who has is a real well diversified
1: investor. Yeah, I only, I would never recommend these for a first time investor. I would never recommend them for someone who is basically less than 50 or 75,000 of income. I would never recommend them for someone who doesn't have other investments. But for the type of people out there who are basically in the tax bracket where they're facing problems, they've got other investments, and they're looking for tax reduction strategies, then this, to me, is one of the most attractive type of vehicles that's, uh, that's out there today. And I like the tax real estate programs also. Those credit programs are very nice, but they don't give cash flow. They give credits for 10 years running. So you have 10 years of guaranteed credits from the government, and those are really nice. But again, they require someone who has ongoing tax Reduction needs.
2: John, if you would like any information regarding some of the vehicles or the information that you've discussed with Doug, the number's 919 872 7000 in Raleigh.
1: Thanks a lot. Well, Lynn, uh, what's new in the area of investment planning?
2: Doug, I saw a headline about different names of mutual funds being confusing for investors. Exactly what does it mean?
1: A lot of mutual funds are putting names to their funds which tout a particular style of investing or a type of risk which is not really indicative to the fund at all. They might have a fund with a name that makes it sound like it's a low-risk fund, whereas, in fact, it's actually a high-risk fund, and so on. Names can be just as deceptive, even when it comes to the investment objectives. Uh, all kinds of, 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 of strategies... Of it's
4: like, you know, this may work.
1: I hop in the car, I have a cigarette, you know, wake up in the
4: middle of the night with an asthma attack, hit my inhaler two times, come outside and have a cigarette. It was really
1: bad. Call 1-800-QUIT now. Looking at a whole bunch of different research outfits that track different stock-picking styles of mutual funds. The source that I like the best, Linda, is Morningstar. Right, those are excellent reports. The Morningstar reports are an independent analytical service that every two weeks comes out with another uh, tracking of mutual funds and also their styles, what's new, who, which managers have left, and so on. You have to be very careful about just going by the name of a fund that you've heard of and thinking that the name tells you the amount of risk because you need to have some professional help evaluating the risk in the particular funds that you're getting into, or you can get into serious trouble. By the way, if you want to go ahead and call in at the office, during the week it's nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand
2: Doug um I wanna ask you a question here sometimes the elderly or seniors are encouraged to get into or to invest in tax free investments and what is the the argument regarding that with regard to seniors?
1: Well Lynn that's a really Suspect area because if it you
2: sounds, will. you know. Well, I'll go into a tax-free investment, so I won't have to pay the taxes.
1: Yeah, I really, I have a real problem with some of the sales tactics that are used in selling tax-free bonds and municipal bonds to senior citizens. The argument usually goes by selling the sizzle, not the steak, if you will. It sounds so great, tax-free, and number right, right. and number two, guaranteed. But you know, if you think it through, Lynn, it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. If a person is in a very low tax bracket, as many senior citizens are, then they're not in need of getting a tax free income. And here's why, Lynn. If a corporate bond mutual fund is paying seven and three quarters percent, And if a tax-free bond fund is paying 5%, now think this thing through. If you have $100,000 giving you seven, call it 8% to make it sweet, make it nice and easy, then you're getting $8,000 income, but you have to pay tax on it. If you're in a tax-free fund and you're getting 5% on $100,000, you're getting Mm $5,000, right? Right. But you pay no tax on that. Right. Right. Now, if you're in a low tax bracket, on the $8,000, if you only turn around and pay $1,500, you made 8000 you paid 1500 in taxes, how much did you keep? You kept $6,500. 6, yeah. And in the tax-free fund, you paid no tax, and you kept 5000 So where'd you keep the most? With the taxable or the tax-free? The taxable. Of course. That is only true if you're in a low tax bracket. Now, if you're in a high tax bracket, and you were paying $3,500 in taxes, then you would have only kept $4,500 with the taxable or $5,000 with the tax-free. And, and usually your senior citizens, especially those who are now living on Social Security income, they're in such low tax brackets that they really are not going to have much of a taxable effect. So the first thing I have against selling tax-free investments to senior citizens is, You need to add them up both ways, figure your taxes both ways, and see which way you are going to come out. If you are in a low tax bracket, more than likely you'll come out better with a taxable yield than a tax-free yield.
2: Well, you can do all those calculations, right? Those hypotheticals beforehand. Oh, anybody can do
1: any decent financial planner. Or if you are doing planning, of course. Number two, they're sold on safety. Safety. They're guaranteed. Safety. Guaranteed. Tax-free. They're not guaranteed. What happens is, Lynn, they're only guaranteed. If you hold that bond until maturity, if you hold it for 25 years and then you'll get back your $10,000 or your $100,000, but along the way, you can sell it for less than you paid for So it's not guaranteed along the way. Credit risk is guaranteed, but not interest rate risk. Okay. Okay.
2: I think I understand a little bit better. All right. <laughs> work with a financial planner. And if you have any questions locally, you can call us at the office at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
1: Let's pause here for a caller. Mike, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
5: Um, I might be getting some money from an accident at work, a significant amount. someone told me that I might want annuities as opposed to like a, a fixed uh, lump sum.
1: Uh-huh. Uh,
5: what, what do you think about that?
1: Tell me a little bit about yourself, Mike. How old are you?
5: 28.
1: 28 years old. Are you married or single? Married. Married. Any children?
5: Yes.
1: How many kids? One three-year-old. One child, three years old. Are you able to work at all now?
5: Uh, not, not the present occupation, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to do something else.
1: All right. How about your wife? Is she working? No. Okay. How much is the size of the settlement?
5: I don't know. I just uh, It's probably a significant
1: amount of... Uh, it's hard for me to answer a question without a number, though. Uh,
5: yeah, that's would what it, you're saying, but uh, I mean, would to, it be fifty thousand right, or hundred thousand? Some significant
1: amount is twenty-five thousand, and to other, it's two hundred and fifty thousand. Oh
5: no, it, it'd probably be it maybe closer to a million or something like
1: that. All right, if you're going to be getting a, a settlement in the hundreds of thousands up to a million dollars, then you definitely do not want to do an annuity. Okay. And let me tell you why. Think in terms of chickens and eggs, Mike.
5: Okay.
1: All right. Chicken's your principal. Eggs are the income that comes off your principal. Okay. The positive feature of the annuity is we can find an annuity, and if you do, you need to, uh, to speak to an expert because the positive feature is you will get a guaranteed, fixed, a guaranteed income for the rest of your life and for your wife's life if you want. Okay. The negative is you've just disinherited your kids. There's nothing that goes to the children. Okay. In other words, you're going to trade the chicken... For a stream of eggs. Right. Right. And I don't think I mean, for example, if we have a million dollar portfolio, do you have any idea what your living expenses, including your disability needs, are?
5: Uh probably about uh thirty five thousand a year. I'm sorry? About thirty five thousand a year.
1: About thirty five thousand a year. Well, with a million dollar portfolio, you could get sixty thousand a year cash flow. Mm-hmm. That would not be guaranteed, but if all we need off of that is $35,000, we got a big hedge factor, and we keep the chickens. Right. In other words, whoever holds the chickens wins, and I'm very hesitant to recommend that clients go ahead and give up their chickens to let an insurance company have them and just take the eggs. I think you ought to always look at the fact of what I can do myself, uh, but it sounds to me like you definitely should not go ahead and get an annuity. Now, there may be a way we can blend to also. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes we can get a blended program where we get enough annuity to give a guarantee and then, you you know, to cover your base needs and then keep the rest. But you got to run the numbers half a dozen different ways to see what works best for the client.
5: Okay. And uh, does it matter, I mean, as far as, like, their side of the, uh, the issue, whether they give up an annuity or lump sum? Well,
1: yeah, it does matter from their side. Do you have who do you have negotiating on your side? An attorney?
5: Yeah. Well, I don't have one yet, but I I haven't
1: signed anything. But yes. All right. Again, you may want to work with a certified financial planner because what you're talking about is something called structured settlements. Right. And very often they will offer you a bigger amount in a structured settlement than in a lump sum. And that becomes tricky trying to figure out which way does it work out best for me. Right. Yeah, listen, jot down my office number. It's 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000. And some people remember that as just USA 7000. Uh, it, it, it. It is a tricky issue because they would rather go the structured settlement route but... You, you have a trade-off in features because that structured settlement, again, denies you the access to the principal. Right. Uh, and in selecting the attorney, uh, I'd be careful also okay. beca- because you want an attorney who can negotiate from both sides, from the side of the investment portion that works best for you in addition to you know, uh, um, the negotiating process itself. In other words, for the dollar amount. Uh, very very often when, 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 when financial planners get involved like that, they go ahead and help select an attorney, so the attorney is part of the team, and the attorney and the planner work together to to make sure it works out best for the client hmm. you know what i 'm saying yeah. Yeah. because the attorney rarely knows investments right, and the financial planner i 'm not talking about a stockbroker stockbrokers know about finance, about investments, but they don 't know about planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the financial planner goes ahead and will know both pieces of it and how to go ahead and grind numbers for the attorney. What works best this way? Let's try the numbers this way. Let's try the numbers that way. You're 28 years old. We got to also factor in your living expense inflation over the next 60 years. Right. You got a three year old child. We got to figure that for college education and so forth. Right. So there are a number of variables, and the planner will be the one that can coordinate the whole thing, run the numbers, do the what ifs, play it out a number of ways. And basically, the planner should have the attorney working under him, not as an employee, but where he, you know what I'm saying? Attorneys generally don't like, attorneys work better if the planner is hired first <laughs> okay. be, be, because attorneys get, uh, they get a little professional jealousy. You know, they, they're the attorney and then you bring a planner in and the planner knows more than the attorney does about the numbers. And, and so you get this professional jealousy. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. On the other hand, if the planner has helped you find the attorney, then the attorney always works well with the planner.
2: Did your accident happen recently, Mike? Oh, uh, yeah. So, so you haven't really uh, gone forward yet in, in no, securing no. an attorney? I, I
5: just, just starting that right now. Yeah, just gotten
1: to the point where I can do that.
2: Exactly, and, and probably one thing that you want to do is write down any questions that you have.
1: That uh, other questions that might have occurred exactly. to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a lot of free time on your hand right now, right? yeah <laughs> And I don't mean to treat legs speak lightly of it, Mike, uh, But uh, Linda's got a great point. While you while you're going through the, the, this you know process, it's the biggest decision that you'll make in your life probably. Right. So right. you've got a number of questions that come up and you should start to go in and write those questions down. You know what about my estate? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if my wife remarries? You know all the kinds of things that, 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 that And
2: and also about your your accident chronologically, what happened and what, you know, you're uh, going to have. Been, I've been keeping a diary. Yeah, oh, good. You've been you have a journal. That's great. Yeah. Okay, and, and, you know, if we can provide any more information, you can call us at the office here in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. And that number is 919 That's 919-USA-7000. I'll be happy to send you some information. Okay. And we wish you the best and hope that uh, you're feeling better. Okay thank, you okay, thank you for calling. Well, Doug, you taught a course to insurance agents about solving the large, unsolvable estate tax problems. And I'm a little confused about whether we're talking about estate taxes or income taxes.
1: Well, Linda, you're right. The course I taught dealt with estate tax problems, but we were talking about the big estate. In other words, people that have a lot of money and the unsolvable problems, in the account. But that type of individual fell into four categories. One was estate taxes. That's the taxes that have to be paid when a person dies before their inheritance gets left to their inheritors. That's the estate taxes, and that's a problem. Another one is retirement income. Very often, this problem doesn't seem to be there because people have wealth, like a lot of land, but they're not getting enough retirement income, and so this is a second problem. Very often, that the wealthy have the retirement income problem. That's like a person who has a lot of land in in wealth, but it's not producing any income oh, for okay. them. Oh, okay, all right. So that's like that's a far- like farmland, farmland that was either inherited or. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the second problem. The first one was estate taxes. The second was retirement income. The third is called the capital gains tax problem. This is a tax that happens when you sell something and have to pay taxes on the profit. The capital gains tax is a big problem for a lot of people because they don't know whether to sell and pay the taxes or to hold it and, and not get the income but not know what to do. That's the third problem. And the fourth one is the gift tax problem. That you give money away or you give real estate away or you give a business away and all of a sudden your accountant tells you you've got to pay a tax for giving it. Because you gave it away. Because you gave it away. So these are the four unsolvable problems, Linda. Estate taxes, retirement income, capital gains taxes, and gift taxes.
2: Well, what's the solution? Life insurance?
1: Well, a lot of life insurance agents might say so, Linda, but life insurance can be a solution. It can also be a problem. For example, it can be a solution to pay final expenses, to pay off debts that remain to the spouse, to support the spouse, to support children or to pay for children's college education. Yes, it can be a solution in those cases, but it can be a problem because life insurance can increase the value of the estate, it can increase the estate taxes, and it can decrease the amount of inheritance that the kids get. So, Life insurance alone isn't the answer. Now, there is a type of life insurance called second-to-die life insurance, and that can be a solution, yes.
2: Well, how how does second-to-die life insurance work?
1: Well, second-to-die life insurance, Linda, or sometimes called survivor life, is a type of life insurance that pays not when the first person dies. It pays after both have died. It pays at the second death, and it's purchased just for estate tax protection. In other words... If the spouse doesn't need insurance proceeds when her husband dies, let's say he dies first, but they've already done an estate analysis and the estate is going to be hit with a big tax after she dies, then insurance that pays off at the second death would be the solution there. That's called survivorship or second to die insurance. And uh, a lot of clients should buy it because in one case, it's cheaper. Very often, Linda, it's cheaper than buying two policies, one on him and one on her, because you don't know which one's going to die first, and you're worried about the estate taxes at the second death. Another reason to get second-to-die insurance is because it's easier to insure the uninsurable. You might right. have, a per- you might have might one of the sick. two spouses might be seriously ill, uninsurable, but you can get a policy, a second-to-die policy, that covers both lives.
2: Like the second, the, say the wife is younger... And in better health, but the husband maybe has
1: cancer. cancer or... Yeah. Very often, what's happening here, Linda, the insurance company is gambling. And they're betting on the fact that one of these two will live a long time and they don't have to pay off until the second death. So that's another situation. And of course, the third reason people should buy it is it solves the estate tax problem. You can pay your estate tax dollars by paying 10 cents on the dollar by buying insurance that way. So in that case, it's sometimes useful.
2: Isn't there a solution besides the insurance as far as solving the large estate problem?
1: Depends what it is. Give me a case. Give me an example.
2: Well, for example, you know, in North Carolina, we have a lot of folks that own a lot of acreage, uh, farmers, people that have tobacco allotments, or families inherited large parcels of land. hmm And say maybe we had one family that had a $3 million estate that was mostly in real estate. Mm-hmm but only had maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars
1: in cash. Okay, that's a, good, that, that's a good example. Now, let's look at that case there. You've got an elderly couple. They have a $3 million estate, but they only have how much, ca- how much liquid assets? Only about 200000 uh, $200,000 in liquid assets. That sounds like a lot of money, but that will not produce a lot of income. That will not support many people very far. You might be talking about $6,000 in income. So you can't live on that. So the guy says, what we need to do, dear, is we need to sell our property. We need to sell some of the farmland. Kids don't want it anyway. Let's right. sell it. All right. This is a very clear case. They find out that they bought this property many years ago, 40 years ago. They paid next to nothing for it. It's worth, let's say, a million dollars now. Or, well, you said they had a $3 million estate, so maybe it's worth $2 million. They find out that it's gonna cost them six hundred thousand dollars in taxes and capital gains tax to sell that property for two for two million dollars. Ouch. Right. Okay. So then they get a real problem. That's a hard story to say, now what do we do? We can't sell it because it's gonna cost so much in taxes. Then they go ahead and see an estate planner and they find out that if they die tomorrow, the taxes on their estate are going to be about a million and a half dollars, and they only have two hundred thousand in cash assets anyway. So the kids are gonna have to have a fire sale. They're not gonna get the they're not gonna get the land anyway. This is a classic case. Real big problems. They need retirement income. They've got a capital gains tax problem if they sell it to get the retirement income, and they've got a huge estate tax problem if they die and don't do it. They can't afford to go forward and they can't afford to go backwards. They lose either way. That's the classic case. In that case, Linda, yes, there's a solution. And life insurance is not the solution there.
2: Well what is the solution?
1: The solution here is what we call the charitable trust or the double trust strategy.
2: And basically, what is that?
1: Well, what we're going to do in a case like this, Linda, is we are going to go ahead and we're going to establish a trust. We're going to give away to this trust this $2 million of real estate. And then this trust is going to turn around and sell the property. And do you know how much taxes the trust is going to have to pay when it sells it? No. Zero. Zero. Zero taxes. And why is that? Because we write in the trust agreement that one day, after both he and she are dead, the assets or the cash that's left in that trust will go to a charity. But not until they're both passed away. All okay, right?
2: so the assets are in the trust. We
1: got $2 million and, they... and, we, and we sell it. Now right. the trust has $2 million of cash. Right. The trust turns around and invests that money. And the trust can go ahead and get... About 150000 a year income. Now, you know where that income goes? Where? Back to Mr. and Mrs. Mom and Dad. In other words, we set up the trust so all of that income, 150000 a year, goes back to Mom and Dad.
2: I think that's wonderful. The land, which was sitting there anyway, probably not doing very much or not bringing in very much. Right. Uh, creates the problem, but by selling it and using the investments to create income. Right, Doug? Right. Mom and Dad can continue to live.
1: And a lot more income than if they sold it and paid the taxes and got the income off of what was left. Right. But we do have a problem. Who's gonna be upset? The children. Right. What happens when they die? It's gonna to go to the charity. But we have taken care now of the first issue, no capital gains tax.
2: I think that's outstanding.
1: And much more retirement income. By the way, if you want to go ahead and call in at the office during the week, it's nine one nine. Eight seven two seven thousand. 7, 2, Everything worked out beautiful. The only problem is the kids were very upset because they just got their estate given away. That's because right. at death, what's in that first trust, that charitable trust, has to go to a charity. All the income from that first trust can go to mom and dad for the rest of their lives.
2: So wh- how do we keep the children happy? How do we take we care of We set
1: up a second trust. This second trust we call the Wealth Replacement Trust. The purpose of this trust is to replace the wealth that they moved from their personal name into their first trust, the charitable trust. And this replacement trust owns a life insurance policy, a second-to-die life insurance policy, equal to the value of what we put into the first trust.
2: So if the value of that first trust was $3 million,
1: Then we get a $3 million second-to-die policy. If the value of the, of the first trust was a million, we'd get a million-dollar second-to-die policy. And you haven't answered the $64,000 question. You haven't asked the $64,000 question. And what is that question? Where's the money come to pay the insurance premiums on that second trust? And where does the money come from, Doug? I knew you were going to ask. I just knew it. <laughs> I knew it. It comes from the income from the first trust.
2: All the money that's being invested in trust A.
1: We saved all those tax dollars. We saved $600,000 in taxes. We got double the retirement income, and we peel off a small amount of that to pay for the insurance that's over in the replacement trust. And mom and dad get the benefit. The charity gets the benefit. The kids get the benefit. Zero estate taxes. Zero capital gains taxes. Double the retirement income. Everything works out beautifully. Doesn't really cost anything. Let me tell you one thing to be careful of. The real question is, who runs the show? Who is the the trustee? trustee of that trust that you give away everything to? The way to make sure that you do this right is make sure that the individual who gives the stuff, that's mom or dad, they become the trustee. So really, all they're doing is moving their own assets From pocket A to pocket B, if you will.
2: So you can be your own self-trustee. You can be
1: your own trustee of your own charitable trust. And you're moving it out of your estate. You can sell it and have no capital gains tax. And you control all of the investments. You control the income that's going to flow back to you. And the only thing you don't get is you don't get the principal. It's got to go to the charity. So you set up the principal in the replacement trust. Because that's what you get all the income from. And Uncle Sam says this is all all right. Uncle Sam loves it. It's even written in the code. Income taxes, really, Linda, are nothing more than involuntary philanthropy, if you've ever considered that. That's all the tax system is. It's involuntary philanthropy. You have no choice. You are supporting philanthropic organizations, okay? Like housing the poor and the elderly and taking care of all the things that the government does with their money. This is voluntary philanthropy. Uncle Sam loves the charitable arena. I think it's great. I love the double trust and a lot of people don't know how to work with them, but they are the proper way to go ahead and deal with the unsolvable problems, the big unsolvable estate tax problems, estate taxes, retirement income, capital gains taxes, gift taxes and liquidity. And the key is the trustee. Be your own trustee. Never let someone else be the trustee
2: work with a financial planner. And if you have any questions locally, you can call us at the office at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And I do believe we have a caller.
1: Marilyn, how can I help you?
4: Yes, I want to know the difference in a durable power of attorney and a regular power of attorney.
1: All right. Well, tell me a little bit about your situation. I'll see how I can relate it to you.
4: Well, it's Technically, not my situation. I just had a form that asked for a durable power of attorney, where I had already supplied a regular power of attorney, and I just Why? Yeah.
1: Why did you get the form? Is it for? Is it for a relative of yours? Yes,
4: it was for a relative of mine, and uh, I just didn't know what what the difference meant in a durable versus just a regular power of attorney.
1: Well, very simply, a durable power of attorney, Marilyn, is one that endures beyond incompetency, and a, a regular power of attorney does not endure beyond incompetency. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I. But beyond the definition, you can run into some serious problems where it may not be exa- at all what you're looking for. Who solicited the power of attorney? Uh,
4: it was a brokerage account.
1: Let me ask you, why did you have a power of attorney on file with them?
4: It was for my aunt, and she's in a nursing home, and I take care of her thing.
1: Right. I suspect that something like that might uh, might be the case. What you may find out is that a durable power of attorney may not work, and, that's, uh, and that, that is a problem which... A lot of people aren't aware of.
4: So really, I should just consult my attorney and
1: ask. Well, your attorney may not know the difference either. What you need to know is you need to know the difference between a durable power of attorney and the possibility of using what's called a revocable living trust. Mm -hmm. The revocable living trust eliminates the problems. Now, a durable power of attorney says that the power of attorney, if your aunt becomes incapacitated and unable to make decisions on her own. Is she still able to make decisions on Uh, her own? No,
4: she's not, no.
1: Well, then what they're concerned about is the ability to go beyond, suppose it's challenge, then Mm -hmm. I, and and I'm not sure that you can get that power of attorney to be made durable at this point.
4: Right, if she's not competent to sign it.
1: Yeah, in other words, and they may be very nervous Mm -hmm. that they don't have a power of attorney that would stand up Mm -hmm. because if the present power of attorney does not say that it endures beyond incompetency, mm-hmm. then they may be concerned mm-hmm. that they got a toothless dog, that, mm-hmm. they're, that they're putting themselves at risk because they're letting you operate with the power of attorney that is not valid. Mm-hmm. Now, I am not sure you would have to contact your attorney, but I would contact your attorney and find out if it's possible to move the assets into a revocable living trust now that you After your aunt is incompetent, Mm -hmm. it may or may not be able to be done, but if it could be done, then you have bypassed the problems of dealing with the brokerage firm with power of attorney. Mm -hmm. Then you are the trustee. Mm -hmm. And if you're the trustee, then you're not operating as power of attorney for anyone. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying?
4: So a a power of attorney is best just for short-term solutions. If someone's in the hospital or just not able to pay bills or those sorts of things. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's just more of a short term solution.
1: A power of attorney, there are different types of powers of attorney, but the power of attorney is for that period of time that specifies in the power. Mm -hmm. The brokerage firms and uh, a lot of people do want a power of attorney that is durable beyond incompetency. Mm -hmm. But my point is that in some cases, now the banks give you no problems. Generally, they will accept durable powers of attorney and some of the brokerage firms will, but some of the mutual fund companies will not. Okay. And, uh, and and we need to either find out ahead of time the investments that you're in mm-hmm. and see if they will accept durable powers of attorney, or you need to build into your durable powers of attorney a way to keep validating that power of attorney that is still durable.
2: Will the assets pass to you at her death, Marilyn? No, they will not. Oh, they will not. So okay. you're just helping her take care of it That's so that right. she can... Uh, pay for her nursing home costs, etc. That's right. Well, if if you have any further questions or if we can be of any further assistance, um, you can call our office at 919-872-7000 in the Raleigh area, Uh and we'll be happy to do what we can to assist you. Right. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you very much for
1: calling. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us, and for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
0: You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug, Linda, or Deborah... In Raleigh at 919 872 7000. That's 919 872 7000. Or go to DougAndLinda.com and listen again next Sunday at 6 p.m. for more Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis on News Radio 680 WPTF.